Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast gab fest wherein a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, identity, culture, what we like to read, and who we like to read. Food for thought. We'd be teases, but we keep giving it away. Oh, <laughs> we can't tease. We no, uh, have never teased them once in our life. Actually, like, there's we leave the... nothing to the imagination. <laughs> not at all. Just, yeah, that whole, what, we go what's all the, the like, in. old wives, like, kind of aphorism of, like, why buy the milk? You can get the cow for free. It's <laughs> yes. like, I am. I am the embodiment. I am the cow. I am giving free. it away for free. Milk me. Yeah. Does anybody want to milk me? I don't have the patience to tease, to be honest with you. And I who has time for that? And I'm also too much like wrapped up in my like instant gratification thing I think mm. see I'm all about the tease I'm all about foreplay I love like my I even with my hookups like I love to like fuck with them a little bit and flirt a little bit and, oh wow you like being manipulative friend I, I cannot oh. I cannot possibly oh. I cannot possibly imagine oh. that to be the case no Milk me. Yeah. The um, whole thing about teasing, though, is that that's like you want the long game, and like usually I'm not playing the long game. Mm -hmm. I want us to have a good time. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Damn. (laughs) I want you to go. I want you to go. So, like, no, why make me tease? I am like that in that, like, right after sex, like the second that. Um, we climax. I don't want to see you anymore. <laughs> and I, the teasing is over. <laughs> yes, for me, the climax is just the tease to get someone to marry me. Right. That's it. This is that the, is true. the climax is the foreplay. Right, right, right. The rest of our lives. Is oh, the climax the is the moment. wedding for you. Oh God, like, yes, please. The divorce. Yeah, it is. The divorce. <laughs> that's my climax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my climax is that alimony check. Yeah, yes. That's, yes, yeah, yes, that's when yes, I finally yes, get yes. off. Is, is the, when the prenup hits. <laughs> yes. uh, hello, out there in Thoughtland. I am. <laughs> Tommy Teebs Pico, Indigenous American poet, screenwriter, TV writer, all the things. And I just want Jason Momoa to put his fingers in my nose and his thumb in my mouth, decapitate me, and go bowling with my severed head. <laughs> oh, oh, strike, mama. Strike. A, that is a compelling image, Gutter ball. poet. Gutterball. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm Joseph Osmondson, scientist, nonfiction writer, and my sexuality is wearing a face mask after having eaten a breakfast burrito. Mm. Oh. Just to, oh. you just get to keep tasting it. I remember for hours oh. and hours when Jenny Zhang left uh, and went back to Manhattan at the start of quarantine. At the start of lockdown, she was like, "Do you want a face mask? I have a few." And I was like, "Oh yes, ma! Like, of course I want a face mask." And she, it was she meant like an actual N95 face mask and not yeah. like a face like you know yeah. like a gel I, mask or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a comment. I thought the exact. I was like, like, I was oh, like, oh my god, oh. moisturizing or purifying. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm Fran. I'm a writer. I'm an editor, and uh, we here at Food for Thought believe that if you do not eat ass, you do not deserve socialism. That, okay? Those holy. are just facts. Those okay. are just facts. Holy facts. Okay? Like, grow up. One hundred percent. Yeah. Okay? What are you so afraid of? Giardia? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've gotten little... Giardia so many times from eating ass. <laughs> no, just twice. Just twice. It's just oh a little salty, you know? Oh my it's a little God. salty. Well, I mean, I think, I can't remember who said who said it, but, like, the whole, whole thing is, like, it should taste like an ass, but it shouldn't taste like shit. <laughs> and that's all you have to worry about. That's all you have to worry about. That's a lot to worry about. No, 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 no. Oh, that's so much to worry it's about. Not, I'm it's not right nothing now. to worry about. It's not nothing to worry that's about. Why, that's why I love the sugar scrubbing of the butthole and the oils and, you know. Yeah, I need to I need to get that sugar scrub, by the I way, have extra. Too. I'll bring yeah. it. Oh, my God. Yes. No, seriously, because I'm about to have my ass eaten very soon, and it's going to be glorious. I guess that ass is getting eaten. <laughs> oh, my God. God, I'm, I quit the show. That should have been the actual song. <laughs> that is my debut single. Sorry, Dan. Um, no. I'm Dan Michelle. I'm a reader and a writer, a former figure skater. And quite honestly, my life, my love life is a Macy Gray song. Oh. Yeah. Oh, uh, any we're of them. going throwback. Fred Take is too pen. young. Did you try to uh, say goodbye and you choked? <laughs> <laughs> no, On the dick? Yes. 
tried to walk Ch- away. It stumbled. Choked on yeah, yes. that sixteen-year-old yes. man. <laughs> <laughs> when you say goodbye, <laughs> when you ghosted oh, wait, on that sixty-year-old man. When I didn't say goodbye, because well, I fully ghosted a sixty-year-old man. We were talking about it this Short morning in. about how Den has, you know, very funnily, funnily um, dumped a sixty-year-old man once, and uh, we actually found out that you did not dump him; you ghosted him, which that is, is worse. That is way worse. Way worse. I had never even thought about it too, which is funny because I have this whole like anti-ghosting thing, and like I will not ghost people now. Um, well, not if, not if we've like had sex. I might ghost you if we've only had one date. But um, yeah, I was dating this man for like three months, and I fully ghosted him. And he had a house on Fire Island. Yeah, I shouldn't have ghosted him. Wow. Yeah, yeah he had a house on Fire Island. I'm feeling a little peckish. I think it's time we start the top of the show the way any good top should with a little tease. Our uproarious appetizer segment amuse Boosh and to amuse our Boosh's den. Take it away. Mm. I'm terrified. Oh, this is like, so this, I feel like this is a very sweet story. Um, I hate it already. <laughs> you love sweetness, how you, mm. it's like your favorite thing. So this is a few years ago and um, the setting, New York City the Lower East Side, hmm. um, a gay okay. bar that many of us will know. I think everyone at this table will know called Eastern Block. Okay. okay. Yes. Love yes. Ben yeah. Too. Which I believe, I believe did not survive COVID. Oh, no. No, it, it was, it closed well before COVID. It is oh. now um, oh. Club Coming. Oh. Oh, Club Coming. Yeah, yeah, Eastern, yeah. I didn't realize that that was the former Eastern Block. Right. Yes. So it was um, one of my best friend's birthdays, and we had like all gone out to eat with his family, um, and then we left with them and went to Eastern Block because that was actually his favorite, like Lower East Side bar. And it's so cute. it's a cute space. It's, it yeah. smells. And it I think smells. That era of Eastern Block, they like played a bunch of porn on the walls. Yes, or whatever. Yeah. they would play porn on the walls. They had like t- like TV sets like into the walls, like all around, and they would play porn. Vintage porn. Vintage. Yes, vintage porn. It was really. It felt very Tom of Finland in a way, mm-hmm. like the porn. Okay, so hot but oppressive. <laughs> yeah, that is that's a yeah. yes. Yeah, that's a yeah. really gayness. Yes. Yeah, that's gayness. Hot yeah. but oppressive, sure. funky, sticky floors, really like gritty kind of place. Love. Not really my favorite kind of bar, to be honest. <laughs> but we were there, and um, I'm coming back from the bathroom, and my song comes on, and it's Three by Britney Spears, and I really love Three by Britney Spears. Okay. So I got up on one of the benches. They had benches like against the wall, kind of around mm, the whole place. And so I did. get up on the bench, and I'm dancing, and this guy comes, just like comes up to me and kind of puts his arm around me, and we Which start you love. dancing together. I love my favorite favorite thing is when a person that I'm with either puts their arm like around my waist or like has their hand on the small of my back. It just absolutely mm. turns me on. It makes me, me feel like very sort of safe and then i just it just gets me all tingly it's, even if absolutely i don't know it's a little too intimate for me <laughs> <laughs> oh we know teams yeah <laughs> just the lightest yes. touch <laughs> get away so, i can feel your breath <laughs> <laughs> so um so this guy and i start dancing and then we we start making out and he um looks at somehow we start talking and i ask him how old he like I ask him how old he is, and he's 30, I think, 30 or 31, and I think I was 28 or 29. Yeah, definitely young for me. And he was like, oh, my God, I fully – I think I I first asked him, like, oh, how old do you think I am? And he thought I was – he was, like, 22. And I was like, oh, I love you. Marry me. Hmm. Um, But I was, like, close to 30. Okay. So we're making out, and I do something that I've really never done at this point, which is that we – I decide to go home with him. Oh, I love, so, love it. I've also never done that before, Dan. Wow. I have it's... only a very few times. Yeah. Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Of being murdered. <laughs> it is. You You end up being afraid to be murdered. And it was funny, too, because as we were walking out, my friend whose birthday it was, like, definitely came up to him, put some bass in his voice, and was like, 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 like we'll, we will come after you if you, like, hurt our friend. So, like, don't murder Den. Don't murder Den. <laughs> oh my God. Just the if smallest of asks. Don't <laughs> murder Please don't murder yes, like, Please be a good guy. So we go, like, I, we get in the cab. We take a cab back to my place. I'm living in Park Slope at the time. And um, we first, we're like, we're starving. So we go get pizza at a, like, neighbor, at a little joint that's still open at 3 a.m. And we're walking back and we're talking. And it turns out he's a lawyer. And it turns out that he went to law school at Stanford with and was a classmate of one of my best friends from college, which okay, is like okay. so funny. So we like really are like talking it up. And it's like, like, like we're getting to know each other. We go back to my apartment. Um, we 
eat the pizza. He drinks leftover beer because I had I had some kind of party recently, and I don't touch beer. I just don't like it. So he drinks the leftover beer, and then eventually we like make it to my room. Still eating the pizza. <laughs> No, we finished the pizza at this okay. point. Just the he pizza drinks details. beer from your butthole. He drinks <laughs> beer no, from I, my butthole. I immediately, immediately Im- imagine Den, um, like getting ass ate while eating pizza. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to try that. I'm yeah. going to try that. Yeah. Um, he did eat my ass to the gods. It was it was like church. It was extraordinary. I did a praise dance the next morning, which I will tell you about. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah. So we're hooking up. Where he's eating my ass, um, and then like I start sucking his dick, and it is gloriously big, shockingly big because he's not a super big guy, and I was like just shocked that it was so big. And we then proceed to have really incredible sex, and I believe. It was the first time that I tried reverse cowgirl, uh, which was really I've actually fun. only done that once, and it's great because you don't have to see his face. Yeah. Which we love. We love that. Yes. yes. It is. It is. If, if you're feeling good about your booty that day, mm-hmm. it's, it's good to like put on a little show. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> even though he had he had a gorgeous, gorgeous face. Oh. So we, we hate that. <laughs> We not pers- your type. <laughs> no, not your type. <laughs> Joe, lo- Joe loves a butterface. Butterface. So we we have really really awesome sex, um, and then we're up and we're talking. It's feeling very romantic. It's feeling very intimate. I had planned to kick him out, but it was five in the morning, so I was like, I'm not going to do that. Like, also, I really was like, oh, I'm liking him. You have way more compassion than I do. <laughs> I'd be like, so uh, call you an Uber. Call you an Uber. Like, no, I'm not. I don't know. Like, I do. I always say, like, I don't need aftercare, but actually I do, like, I what I've learned is that I like aftercare. Like, yeah, I like the yeah. idea of being someone who's just, like, go, but I'm not really, I'm not really that girl. I love a cuddle. I love a spoon. We know. So, um, you know, we fall asleep. Everything's good. Um, we wake up the next morning, and I am supposed to leave because my friend whose birthday it was, like, like that was our dinner with, like, our whole group. But then the three of us who are really close, we're going to do, like, a brunch at this amazing brunch place, like, around the corner from my apartment. So the thing is, like many brunch places in New York, they don't take reservations. So you just kind of have to show up and like wait. So I was like, I'm really fucking hungover. I will get there. But like, it's going to be, we know it's going to be an hour wait. So just like get there and I will, I will come. Oh, I miss being young in New York. Those no, those mornings, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you just the smell like sex. You show up and you have gab out with all your friends. You're like, guess who got their ass ate last night? <laughs> yes. <laughs> just and, like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're doing it at these like kind of fancy brunch places that you really can't afford to be eating at. But like you're still there because you you want to think that you're mm. the girls from Sex in the City, basically. Yeah. So um, he and I proceed to um, have sex again. <laughs> That morning, even I'm hungover. I'm exhausted that just is, listening to this story. That is so brave because I, morning mm. sex. Let me tell you, the sex before the morning dump is yeah terrifying. Oh no, I, I can't do it. Yeah. I have to. I have to douche for like a very long time to feel secure in morning sex. I, I definitely just... loved an elf shoe on somebody's sheets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have very successfully morning fucked, but it has to be before coffee. Oh, it it has to be before coffee. I I I love a morning fuck. I do. I also. A trick that I love, and this is what I did with this guy too. I love to wake you up by giving you a blowjob. Uh, like that is wow, one of my favorite things to do. Like what, it's the so cover hot to is me. still on you. Yes, and doesn't yes. it get hot under it gets there? It's hot. It's this too smelly. It's just mm. I no. love the heat. And if you're not fucking people who don't smell bad, it doesn't have to smell bad. Like I don't know. It didn't smell bad to me. Maybe I was just really into him, and I was really into this guy. So we have this. We have this great hookup. We walk out. I walk into the train station. I go to. Um, I, I'm walking up to brunch just as like my friends are getting ready to be seated, and of course they're a little bit pissy because like they were waiting there for an hour, and I was like fucking. Damn, I would have on left someone else's you. birthday. I, well, yeah, on on one of their on one of their birthday. birthday. Yes. Okay. So Dad, this is the kind of person I am. <laughs> and then I showed up, and I was like, guys, I'm so. I was like, I'm so sorry that I was late. I was performing fellatio. Oh, <laughs> and you didn't even have the respect to lie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was like, let me tell you about the night I had. So then. I'd be like, oh, my aunt died. So so um, we have a great brunch. It's all good. I get back to my apartment and I realize that this guy has left. He had this really fabulous, like vintage members only jacket that he was wearing. Um, and he had left it. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like I, 
now feel like I have an excuse to talk to him again. So we, I think we connected on Facebook. I guess, oh, we must have exchanged numbers. And I texted him and I was like, oh, like you left your jacket here. If you want to come and get it, like I'm around this week, just like let me know. And I'm like super hoping that he'll come over and fuck me again. I'm super hoping that like maybe we'll go out on a date. Like I'm starting, I'm, I'm, dum, I'm going dum, full dum, Joe dum, and having dum, wedding. Yeah. Dum, dum. Yeah. And um, anyway, I don't like hear from him in any significant way for literally a year and a half. Like we become oh. friends. We're interacting. We interact a little bit on social media, but there's wow. no like, there's nothing. And at this point, I start thinking maybe I should just like, I don't know, throw the jacket away. Like I'm not going to wear it. It's not my style, but it is fabulous. Um, anyway, that, that seems like such a vibe, like kind of yeah. like cheerleader dating the job. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you, you'd wear it over your shoulders yeah, without yeah. putting the arms Never in. Never put the yeah, arms yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That is how I should have thought of it. I think at the time I thought of it as, oh, he wasn't that into me. And I just felt ashamed because I really Aww. was into him. I was, he was gorgeous. He was super smart. I was like, so into him. Anyway, a year and a half later, he texts me and he's like, so I would love to come over and get my jacket back. I'm going to be moving to, he had just gotten a clerkship with a judge in Ohio. And he was like, I'm going to be moving. Bitch, it's squatter's rights at that point. That jacket is yours. Agreed. Okay, sure. But I wanted I the dick. So oh, I can actually empathize. Right? <laughs> so of course. If you're going to weaponize being like, hey, I got this expensive jacket. You got to yes. fuck me if you want it. Oh my God. Just yes. kidding. That's really no, bad. That's, su- that's super ethically. Oh, wow. Not okay. Being manipulative. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> well, I, I was didn't, kidding. <laughs> I didn't say that. And I fully expected. Cancel her. Internet. Cancel her. I fully expected that he wasn't going to. I I was like, oh, he's just going to come over and pick up the jacket and go. Like, we'll say goodbye. And like, that's it. And that's And that was like fine with me. Well, he comes over. He sits down. We um, end up having dinner. I order sushi. He fucks me and stays the night. And it was really beautiful. And he did take the jacket back. And I was like, I feel like I have a little bit of closure now. Because I've been thinking about you for all this time and sort of lusting after you. Um, but yeah, he did come back and fuck me and get the jacket. Oh my I'm god! So confused. This, is, yeah. this whole story is pure chaos. I, <laughs> I actually think that has a, you know has there are three acts. There are it three. has a, a really it had a promise. Yes, it mm-hmm. had a resonant end. A good inciting incident. I the structure was beautiful. Honestly, <laughs> like I, I think that honestly, Alex She's Chi would Alex Chi would be proud. Alex, Alex, uh, Alex Chi is a novel, Mama. <laughs> I, I oh, it's a novella. It's a novella. <laughs> I adored this guy. I adored this guy. He, he was awesome. Now, if you're listening. Say his first and last name, social security number. <laughs> mm, it's time we get to the meat of our discussion. The thought process spelled T-H-O-T. T-H-O-T. And to sling our salchicha this week, Joe. <laughs> salchicha! Mm-hmm. That was a new one. Oh, He's just losing it in the booth. Mom! Okay, okay, everyone. So gross. We are talking about... Fucked up shit today. Capitalism. Theodore Adorno, who I affectionately call Teddy, uh, wrote that wrong life cannot be lived rightly. What he means by this is that cruelty is so baked into late capitalism that it is simply impossible to live what one could call an ethical life. From the clothes we buy, to the iPhone we used to send dick pics, to the gas we would put in our cars if we weren't gays who couldn't drive, all of these things cannot exist without exploitation, neocolonialism, horrific labor conditions. And the options of quote-unquote ethical capitalism, like free-range chicken and driving a Tesla, getting your fair trade coffee, whatever, are too, both too expensive for most people and still not that much better or different. Mm. How can we spend and make money in such a fucked up world without spending and making money? We can't live. We all know it's e- evil to work as a cop mm. because all cops are bad. <laughs> But is working for a university or a movie studio or even a nonprofit really acceptable? How do we figure out how to accept reality without descending into hedonistic nihilism? To start, my dearest thoughties, thinking about your whole life working, selling your labor for money in order to eat. Mm -hmm. What is the worst job you ever had? The (laughs) job that you feel the ickiest about not in terms Ooh. of the working conditions, but in terms of like, Ickiest. oh, that's evil money. 
It's all evil money. I'm Yep. Yep. This might lead into a, a discussion later on, but um, I one of my first jobs ever was canvassing for the HRC. Ooh. And I did it full time. Like every day I was out on the streets. I was like in a cute little getup with a clipboard. And I was like, hey, do you have one minute for, for gay, gay rights? rights? Yeah. Oh, and I was, like, I was that girl. You and were like, that girl. You know, obviously this was like, what, more than a decade ago. What the- was the salary? How much did you make? Minimum wage? I don't remember what this... It was definitely minimum wage. And I... I, I, But I do remember being very good at it, (laughs) which is very fucked because the whole job is collecting people's credit card numbers on the street, which is still wild to me. But um, also... Uh, I, I, I did it for three months and I actually made more money than I had ever made in my entire life. Wow. But that was because, you know, I was, it was like one of my first jobs, yeah. but, but I still just, I worked really hard on it. But I think when I was there, what I was reeling is realizing is one, the way they recruit canvassers is so fucked. Like it's mm. all on, it's all on Craigslist. And like they, if you do not make a certain amount of money on day one, you're terminated. And mm-hmm. if you make the same, if you make the the kind of like threshold of money that you're supposed to be raising on day one, then you have like a three day or a seven day kind of leniency period. But like, oh if you are not God. raking enough money, you're just terminated. The turnover is like so high. And so th- a lot of things like that mm-hmm. made the whole experience of it feel very fucked up because yeah. I stayed good at it and all my friends just got fired. Oh no! <laughs> Even the guy that I was dating at the time, oh, who I, no. there was this guy that I literally met while canvassing and wow. we ended up, we were dating for like three months, but then he got fired while we were dating. Oh my God. <laughs> but the resentment. That's so Anyways, real, what I'm trying to say is the longer I worked in that environment, the more that I saw underneath the surface of yeah. what I mm-hmm. at the time felt was like a really impactful, important, progressive thing. Yeah, that's right. what my question mm-hmm. was going to be. When you were doing it, did you, were you like idealistic about it? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, like, what? I was a freshman in college. Oh God, so like, right. the yeah. I, I could, there could not, to me, in my imagination, there could not be something more important than trying to get gay marriage passed. Or no, no, actually at that point, it was the Employment Non-Discrimination Act mm-hmm. is like what we were working on. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, this is really important. This is powerful. And of course, when you're a baby gay, like the HRC is like the the nonprofit. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, you think yeah. that they're when in reality they're like the not, worst. Not um, <laughs> but yeah, I think the longer I worked there, the lo- the more I saw those little red flags. Today's show mm-hmm. is brought to you by the HRC. No, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> never has been, never will be. I um, I've been working in academia more or less my whole life. I had so I had very working class jobs growing up. Pizza delivery boy, bus boy, the worst job I ever worked. I think I talked about this on the show was a summer pruner at a tree farm that wrecked my body. My hands were giant blisters, oh sunburn. It was oh, hell. And I was summer I was, pruner, summer pruner, summer, summer pruner, pruner, summer pruner. pruner. <laughs> I was I was making less than minimum wage in that job. It was just like truly horrific. Um but I I had a, a moment. I used to be very idealistic about working in academia. Like like you, Fran, like oh you know, uh, I went to college from a very poor town and college felt magical to me. It's like this place where you can spend your life working on ideas and learning together with other people. Uh, and I very much idealized idolized it uh, and didn't think about the power structures within academia. And I think I had a, a moment in grad school. So I was doing my PhD in New York City, making like $30,000 a year. So not a lot of money. Um but uh, they invited Henry Kissinger to come to my university to give us mm. a, a speech. And so I organized a bunch of – we were tried to get it canceled, but we couldn't get, get it canceled. And you want to know why not? Because his wife and him were the number one donor to the graduate program at my school. So basically Ew. the salary that I did have came from the fucking war criminal Kissinger family. Um, and I did <laughs> – so we, we organized a whole protest about it, which felt good organizing with other folks on my campus. Uh, and I managed to get into – to the dinner after the talk and I called him a war criminal to his face and asked if he was afraid of being arrested when he traveled abroad because he had broken so many international laws. Ooh, um, so, you, you know, you. We, we do it. I think the point that I'm trying to make is it was a real eye-opening moment about the complicity of the university space and how they make money. Um, but it also offered an avenue of um, resistance, mm-hmm. which is like you can organize in the place you're at right. to at least 
you know, make those associations visible and less comfortable. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I felt similarly, like once I started making my living as a touring performer, visiting colleges and universities, it was a twofer for me. One of them being like, you know, the kids would come and they'd be so excited and they yeah. come to their classroom and it was like, I'm definitely making a living off of your debt. <laughs> like oh, your God. student loans pay for me to be here and traveling so much on an airplane. Mm-hmm. I felt yeah. super guilty. I was like, yeah. I'm destroying the world, basically. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm like one huge carbon footprint. Like, <laughs> right. yeah, oh yeah, my god, that's real. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about nonprofits because Yay. I have been in that workspace for oh, wow. most it's, of my it's like adult just helping, life. It's helping the world, right? Then it. it's just like it's just you're changing, <laughs> you're changing hearts lives, and minds, changing the world, that. hearts and minds. That is that is um, that is the narrative that you're sold. And I I went to a small liberal arts college, and I feel like small liberal arts colleges very often are like the breeding okay. ground for that. Like, well, they are very gay, and <laughs> mine certainly was, but they're um. They're, I feel like they're a breeding ground for that idea that like if you want to go out into the world and you want to have positive impact and positive change and really affect people's lives in great ways, that nonprofits are where you do that. I also went to a Quaker liberal arts college where like service and that whole idea is like very integral to the identity. So I really like almost all of my friends when we graduated college went to nonprofits. I actually um I did start canvassing at a nonprofit, did that for a week and quit because I was like, this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I would much rather sell soap at the mall. And I did that instead. For yeah, a year. You did. But you worked at Lush, I which is at the Lush. most dead thing ever. Yes. <laughs> so fun. I still I like love them and their products. would be more dead. You get to touch people's hands all day. That's I mean, oh. yeah. Oh. Which, which at the time was fun, but now I would probably be like, I don't want to do that. Um, so anyway, also then after I went, after I finished grad school, I, I went into the nonprofit sector and did that in New York for a while. And the first job where I did that was at um, the very famous Harlem Children's Zone. Mm. And Ooh, I have heard stories the about streets them. Talk, the streets <laughs> talk about this place. But this is the thing um, that was wild. In some ways, for me, the working condition was kind of amazing. I was on a team of writers, um, many of whom were queer, many of whom were writers of color. And our whole job was to go into their after-school programs and to the two charter schools and do literacy intervention with young, young mm-hmm. students. And so you feel like, in that way, you feel like you're having an impact sort of like on these kids' lives. Directly. Directly. And so that's really great. And also just the team, the most brilliant team of people that I've ever worked with, the most talented, like, like, no joke, two of my contemporaries from there have been up for the National Book Award in in recent years. Like, it's really amazing. um, The group that I was with. But what I got what I really began to understand was how the nonprofit funding structure really weaponizes money and weaponizes capitalism, Mm -hmm. both to the detriment of the people that they're trying to serve, Mm -hmm. as well as to the detriment of the people that they are employing. And this nonprofit in particular, had a whole ethos about employing people from the community, the idea that everyone who can solve this, like the the minds are all in the room. We don't have to like rely on outside outside people to come in and save us yeah. is like kind of the ethos there. Although so much of the funding comes from the outside. And so just really beginning to understand um, the idea that at the end of the day, in the nonprofit um, structure, you depend on money from wealthy donors and corporate donors. And those organizations have a vested interest in not upending the status quo or the power structure that that has um, disenfranchised the populations that you're often trying to serve. So what I didn't understand until I began to actually work in the space and like see these things happening on the day to day is that there's a direct conflict of interest there. And I really, Uh for me, that's when I was like, you know what, there's no way out. Like there's no way out of this capitalist Thing. It's like yeah. it's like we don't need nonprofits. We need rich people to pay enough taxes, taxes. that we can have yes. public no. schools. We wouldn't need yes. philanthropists if rich people yeah. paid fucking taxes. We don't need the Gates Foundation. We need Gates to pay his mother fucking taxes. Oh my gosh! Yes. Two, I mean, two yes. things. That one philanthropy, the, a whole other beast yeah. next to nonprofits, which is like nine times out of ten just wealthy people trying to launder their own money to yeah. make sure yep. that they can avoid yep. taxes. And yeah. even but, even when they're trying to do good, it's undemocratic. We do not need right. Elon yes. Musk and Bill fucking Gates making the decisions. About what humanity does, like fuck those dudes. But another failure within both, especially philanthropy, but also in a lot of nonprofit structures, is that when the, these structures, when identifying marginalized communities and people in need, you have to, in order to receive that care, in order uh-huh. to receive that aid, in order to receive that financial support, have to be um, deemed worth 
like mm-hmm. that care. Mm-hmm. You have to mm-hmm. fill out applications. Mm-hmm. You have to have a social mm-hmm. security number. You have to have a ho- an yeah. address, uh-huh. a home. There's so many different kind of like hurdles yeah. that marginalized people need to go through in order to just get the baseline care. And that is mm-hmm. not how we should be thinking about, I mean, mutual aid is the response to that, That's right? Yes. It's like, yeah. is that there's no, no, every single human deserves Every like deserves to survive, you know. Like that it's is amazing like, yes. that that's a remarkable thing to that you, say. I know, yeah. but like, oh, and people, there's people who people disagree. should be able that's to a survive. State, yes. right? <laughs> like, it is radical, radical, but it, it's like it's like in, in nonprofit in in a lot of nonprofit and philanthropic spaces, yeah. they don't mm-hmm. even realize that they are like literally just pushing people away yep. and like mm-hmm. and that they've also created the need that yeah. they're trying to address yeah exactly just uh, creating more barriers yeah. to it's the like service it's like a Mobius dick and I just wanna I do wanna caveat you don't that, get like, to talk anymore Jeff <laughs> shut up <laughs> I do wanna caveat that like if you know if you're sitting at home and you're like really shook by this conversation like I would be if I when I was like thinking mm-hmm. that nonprofits were like kind of the, the saviors of the world yeah. like I will also caveat that there are a lot of nonprofits out there doing amazing work right. there mm-hmm. are a lot of nonprofits that have amazing Amazing people at them. Yeah. Just as Joe said at the beginning, there are a lot of people within nonprofits that are trying to change nonprofits That's and right. make them be better and to mm-hmm. avoid these like oppressive kind of um, patterns yeah. that they fall into. So you know, if you work at it, if you're listening to this and you work at a nonprofit, we promise you're not evil. If you're, you're yeah, so like we we're, we're proud of you. You're doing your best. You need a yeah. check. Um, I, yes, I have you a need question a for you all. So it, it, what we've learned, HRC. Meh, yeah. Academia. Yeah. Nonprofit world. Uh, yeah. So given that we have structural critiques of all of these spaces that are deemed less evil than working at Wells Fargo, for example, or working at Morgan Stanley, how do you navigate the fact that there is no, you know, there is no healthy way to earn money? What, what choice – how does that affect the choices that you make and where you get your checks from mm-hmm. given that nothing is – nothing is really good? Yeah, nothing's good. I mean here's the thing. Like I, I've got accepted to a thing recently and like they – we got some like swag from them and it was like sponsored by Chase Bank and it was like Chase Bank. And there was this whole divestment from Chase that we were supposed to do yeah. around the – um the standing rock, standing rock you yeah. know what I mean? And it's just like oh, there was a little bit of like a winky frowny thing going on there. And – I I have to remember why I'm here to begin with. Mm. Like I'm here. I, I, I re I diagnosed this early on, although I tried to go into medical school and that that whole thing didn't really work, but it was like, I am here. So to make sure or to help, um, endemic in my mind, I'm here so that young native kids don't want to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's what it comes down to. Cause that's the environment that I was raised in. And I'm working on this show where the, one of the central, um, initiating events is the suicide of a teenager. Mm-hmm. And that, that, like if if what I do makes one Indian kid want to kill themselves that much less, I'm doing good. That's right. how that's how I feel about. It. That's like my net positive at the end of the day. When I go on tour, when I did go on tour, and like the queer native weirdos come up to me crying, mm-hmm. I did something good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't offset harm. I it, it's hard yeah. for me to because there's so there are so many things going behind these decisions in my head and taking accepting a check from Disney to work in this writers room that is the first all indigenous writers room in the history of American television to then tell these stories that nobody's seen before right. to then employ all native people on that set so it looks like Standing Rock Part Two every time I get the dailies back and then to be like but I'm still taking that money but like that this Disney is something money. unprecedented mm-hmm. it's yeah. just mm-hmm. it is it is fucked yeah Yeah. i mean teebs what you're saying is like so resonant to me like i think a lot of the work that i try and do now is like kind of thinking around the fact that like queer people and trans people and black people and brown people have like invented and have been the arbiters of like every single thing that like mainstream culture calls like cool Mm -hmm. and that like it all i want is to like remind people of that fact in my own work you know what i mean but like it come it comes with this kind of like confusion around like oh like what especially when you get the caught up in the someone's gonna cancel me mentality which is like i think really really easy to fall into when you're taking any sort of job but you kind of have to do the best you can to operate just as teams was talking about like operate out of like love power joy like instead of operating out of fear Mm -hmm. and uh, operating it uh, worried about punishment Mm -hmm. um i think that Mm -hmm. society at large 
or a lot of like the way we are having cultural conversations yeah. mm-hmm. in relation to accountability are extremely punitive. It's about canceling mm-hmm. the individual for yeah. complicity in mm-hmm. a system that they can't not be complicit in. And yes. calling someone out, so to speak, is can be a tool of accountability. It can be, yeah. But w- if you are spending all your time trying to call people out for simply making a living, for simply surviving... Um, especially when it's, you know, people that are like, you know, not making that much money and working in the gig economy. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's not really going to help us out. I also wonder with those people who call out only, it's like, but you would have taken the job. Yeah. Someone once, like, you know, a friend of mine was like, made fun of me for taking a pride campaign once. And then I, you know, I I was like, there was nothing evil about it. All the, a lot of the proceeds went to nonprofit stuff. And I was just like, she was like, it's kind of just evil to do stuff like that. Like you don't really like, there's no way around it. Like, it's just like so insidious. And I was like, well, I mean, like, pride campaigns, yeah, at the baseline are all fucked up and evil, but, like, I'm just trying to take a check. And yes. months later, she did a pride campaign. And I was like, see, <laughs> yeah, girl, I no. told you. The, I think the other thing, too, with that is that, like, at the end of the day, when it comes to something like a pride campaign or a job or a freelance gig or whatever, it's like, they have money and they're going to give it to someone. Like, if I don't take that job, someone else is going to take that job. And I need that money. And I, So, like why don't I just take that money? And that that money serves my life in such a way that then I can go elsewhere, maybe find a different channel and do the actual thing that I'm trying to do that's, like, good for the world. All of this is really, like, rounding out to the fact that, like, we, especially as queer and marginalized people, operate out of scarcity, right? Yep, yep, that yep. is... Uh, a given, it's completely understandable. There, It feels a lot of times like there's a limited amount of resources, limited around of, amount of slots and opportunities mm-hmm. for all of us. Mm-hmm. But that is that scarcity mentality is a product of the oppression. Yeah, it is yeah. a falsity created by oppressive forces to yeah. convince us that the only way, you know, one, that we can be happy is to make money mm-hmm. and to, like, base our worth on that. But two, to, like, think that we to, – to keep us from – to keep us – taking things from each other mm-hmm. instead of thinking about how the structure needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. Because when we operate out of scarcity mentality, which was created by oppressive forces, we are thinking that we're punishing each other because we see each other as the enemy instead of the structure. Crabs in a bucket. Yeah. 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 Yep. Crabs I, in a bucket. Oh, I literally, <laughs> Oh, I'm not a big crab fan. Um, I I I literally this is something I've been thinking about deeply for the last couple of weeks because in my most recent session with my therapist we started talking about um the fact that for me like one of my big projects for myself is switching my mindset from a mindset of scarcity to a mindset of abundance and this is electra abundance electra which of course I did think about electra abundance because also I had just watched the electra abundance episode of Pose it's so good it's so good and um and and, and in it she talks about why she named why she chose the last, the last name um abundance but I so I have been on the side for really the last couple of years I've been like doing freelance novel edits and I did a I did I took on a novel edit that was a sensitivity read for a white writer um about a month ago and it ended up being a really like sort of dangerous and not great experience for me like in the end and I was telling my therapist I was like I I was like I every opportunity that comes to me to like do this or to make money I basically take like every single Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. I was so broke and so scared for so much of 2020 that like I am just going to take it like I'm like yes you're going to pay me $150 to do this I'm going to take it you're going to give me $2,500 to do this I'm I'm doing it I'm saying yes I'm taking it I was doing uh, like re- I, same thing I, taking every opportunity that Everything. I could I was doing same. like uh, Instagram poetry the, readings for tips yes, I was yes. Doing the dumbest pride campaigns I was doing the dumbest copywriting gigs like it was so so like demoralizing I actually but it's scary it's scary you like you think you Scar- a scarcity. This was like six or seven years ago when I was having a really hard time freelancing, like really yeah. hard time trying to just like pay my rent. And like mm-hmm. there was some actually, I don't remember. When, anyways, there was a moment where I was reached out to by a nicotine company <gasps> that wanted me to do a vape spawn con for them. And I was like, no, 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 that's like absolutely against my morals. You're literally targeting queer and trans people because we are literally more likely to be addicted to cigarettes statistically. And you know that, which is so fucked. And then they were like, we'll give you $15,000. And I would not, I would be lying if I did not have a flashing thought in my head that was like, 
you could really use $15,000 yeah, yeah. right now. Yeah. But obviously I said no because I have some spine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, but it's like, it's like, it was such a mind fuck to be in that moment and be like, oh my God, I am like redacted dollars in debt. Yeah. And I am like, like struggling so hard to literally make a living trying to be a good person. And I have this really fucked up thing trying to bail me out. I do think, mm-hmm. I think that's important, Fran. I, um, you know what you were saying, Den, that like, if I don't take the check, someone's going to, I think there's limits to yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, this is a limit to that. For me, this I have, would be a limit to that. I yeah. have clear limits to that. I'm not crossing a picket line. I'm not taking, yep. you know, there, there are just things where I'm like, that is something that we don't do. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm a, a bit different than the other thoughts here because my relationship to the gig, gig economy is a little different. And mm-hmm. I think what this conversation is illustrating to me, why the gig economy is so good for capitalists, mm-hmm. because for me, I'm like, I have a salaried workplace in which I can organize. Mm-hmm. I can organize with fellow workers for better working conditions. You know, we can work on forming a union, for example. And that organizing in the place where you're at is how a lot of these bottom up movements mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, higher minimum wage across the country, et cetera, et cetera, often come from workers banding together in a similar workplace, in the same workplace, and say, we're not taking this shit anymore. So I think, you know, for me, if you are salaried, if you're working in a nonprofit, like organizing in your workplace, exactly. whether or not mm-hmm. it's for a union officially, which is great, uh, or or not, I mean, that is incredibly powerful. It also trains you as an activist. It makes connections to your colleagues. And it makes the power dynamics clear. Who has the money? Mm-hmm. How, you know, by Marx's definition, any labor in capitalism is not being remunerated mm-hmm. because uh, some is making a profit, which means they are stealing part of the money that you have earned for the company, Mm. right? Uh, And it makes... Whenever you try to organize in a workplace, it just becomes immediately clear mm-hmm. who's making the money and who's providing the labor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that is a huge thing for me that always being cognizant of that I can make change in the place that I'm at. And that is so hard in the gig economy, right? Mm-hmm. When you're freelancing, you know, yep. when you're working for this company and that company, blah, 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 there's no workplace to organize. Yeah. And that's why it's so easy to exploit gig labor. I, you yeah. know, Joe, you're really hitting home right now. <laughs> I, I mean, last year, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, well, I guess I'll talk about it. I mean, last year I went through a career change. Um, and uh, I just, you know, the events of March through June, uh-huh. a traumatizing moment for a lot of different people, a lot of different communities yeah. really shifted how I was viewing how I collected a check. Uh-huh. And up until that moment, I had worked for the Nikes and the, redacteds and the Googles and the Facebooks, like I'd taken those checks and have always, I'm really proud of a lot of that work, right? I'm really proud of the fact that like I've hired so many queer and trans people to get their, like get their checks cut. I've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for a lot of different queer movement stuff, a lot of nonprofits, a lot of like, you know, stuff that's feeding back into the community. Mm -hmm. But in that work, I I had this come to Jesus moment of like, even if this, even if my work is in service to a community, when I am at salaried at this company, it is in service to a corporation. Mm, of course. And, and, and I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't live with that. Mm. I, I, I still, I'm still telling myself that I don't ever want to be beholden to a company again. Mm. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know. I would really like to not be, you know, getting salaries and benefits from that and I think a big part of that is because I I need that autonomy. I need the ability to say no, um, right? The ability mm-hmm. to say I actually can't do that, um, which a, everyone should have. There's an yeah. idea though, and then like some of these opportunities that we take and some of these jobs that we take, there is this idea that well, if I take this job, I could be mitigating harm. Yep, mm-hmm. totally. Then if somebody else did, and then there is ones like the nicotine thing you were talking about. Mm-hmm. That's not. That's not one where it's like, well, if I take this, I can mitigate harm. You know what I mean? Like no. you're doing harm. <laughs> like I'm, I'm doing harm. for indigenous folks. Like that's another target for like ni- evil nicotine companies. It's like, anyways, um, I, you know, want to ask y'all about your. I hate this look in your eye, Fran. I am <laughs> it's so. A de- it's a devilish. So look. scared. <laughs> you know, as the tweet goes, 
Karl Marx made some points, but he failed to consider that when I buy things, I am happy. <laughs> um, I just want to know. I want to probe into that because like we can sit here on our high horses as a lot of people who want to critique capitalism do. But we also will joke him because I live on a high you're, horse. Friend, you are insufferable. But all the rest of us. We enjoy nice things sometimes. I hate oh, nice things. Of, yeah, you, 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 you do I mean, hate look nice at things. What you're wearing look right at now. what I'm wearing. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, but I it's just want to know what y'all and Joe, you can answer last, maybe. Um, <laughs> I, I want to know what y'all's relationships to pleasure and mm. uh, when you find pleasure in capitalism, where do you reconcile it? Is it even in conversation in your head? Do you ever feel bad about buying something, but then you keep it anyways? Like things like that. Um, honestly, I've only in recent years begun to think about the ethics of buying things and like trying to mm. buy things in a way that is as ethical as possible. And I do not do this all the time. I don't have the money to do this all the time. Um, but at the end of the day, I love to shop. Like I, I just enjoy it. I love, I love purchasing things. I love spending money. <laughs> um, I prefer spending money when I don't have it. Right. Interestingly enough, when I do have it, I much more like, oh, I don't want to spend. But um, I would just say that, like, you know, it's it's the same sort of conversation that I do think about when I think about um, either taking a check, whether it's from a gig sort of thing, or or if it's like where I'm going to be working and doing like a full time job. Like this is the economic system that I'm that I'm in, right. and like I have to also take care of my mental health and my emotional health. And mm-hmm. if like whether I'm talking about buying, like I I moved a couple of months ago and I'm doing something that I've never done, and like I'm buying all new furniture for my bedroom. I have never like all my furniture has been sourced from like Craigslist or like like even stuff that I found on the street in Brooklyn, Love which is a which is a very New York. So thing you to do. live on top of a bed bug, then? No, <laughs> not my bed. But you but know, like like but the like end like of the things. academic year when all the kids move out and they're uh, they just yes. they just microwave yes. yes. and mm-hmm. you can just get and like in nice neighborhoods in New. York City, like people just put stuff out and you can like take it. So like that's over the last like basically I've been in New York almost 10 years. Like that's kind of what I've done. And so for the first time I'm like buying some like nice and more more expensive furniture, like doing some stuff. And it's like at the end of the day, the reason why I'm doing this is because I know that like my bedroom and like my space has to be a safe space for me mentally. It has to be a peaceful space where I can where I can um relax and let go, where I can write and function creatively and and i and this spending is like in service of that so it's like that's also what i have to do to like protect that and that's just as important for me as trying to do everything as ethically as i can we are not evil people for participating participating in capitalism it's like we we're critiquing it because we're forced to participate it yes in in it right yeah i think my my big mm, my big conflict i would say is for so long, I was so cognizant of every single penny that I yep. was spending because yeah. I didn't know if at the end of the month I would have enough mm-hmm. pennies. <laughs> and there's something freeing and maddening about being able to spend without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That I've reached a point in my <sighs> life and in my career where I, I'm making enough that I don't have to think about how much I'm spending mm-hmm. and therefore I spend so much more. And it's like... On the one hand, it feels wonderful because I don't like struggling. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. like the ins- I don't like financial insecurity. I don't like housing insecurity. Mm-hmm. I don't like knowing that mm-hmm. I can o- only have four dollars to live on for the next two weeks. Like that mm-hmm. fucking sucks. Yep. And so it hurts that it feels good that I don't have to think about that anymore. Yeah. And like there's and and like one of my first opportunities getting a commission to write a feature and then getting a Whiting Award that year and being able to pay off my debt mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. so freeing and then so frustrating because it was like i was fully consigned to living with debt for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. and i never imagined being in a place where i didn't have debt and didn't owe money Mm -hmm. and then to not owe that and to feel that weight off my shoulders made me so mad teebs like you and i come like from like you and i you know we've done the same job forever right we you and i we tell queer stories that's all we've ever wanted to do and like something that i always think about is like I've done this job for $13,000 a year and I've done this job for well into six figures and I, it has never mattered to me how much I make. And I think that the, what you're n- touching on is like, I am so used to being underpaid and undervalued for all of that work because that has like the value of it has never 
it's all to me it's not a monetary value right mm-hmm. so now that we are coming into our own financially and absolving some of that like money trauma that residual money trauma mm-hmm. we're kind of like well i mean i've deprived i've been deprived my whole life don't i deserve this i guess mm-hmm. um but yeah i i think it it's obvious there's no perfect re- like resolute point there's no like solution there's no like perfect solution to like how to reconcile that i think a lot of it is though kind of like like the fact that like capitalism is so surrounded by punitive discourse, but you don't need to punish yourself. You know what I mean? Mm. When things bother you a lot. Well, Joe does. Yeah, I do. Joe does. I do. It's my king. Right. But that's, you know, not a, that's, I mean, I wouldn't want to live that life. But like, I mean, I've, I've paid to be punished before too. So. Right. Right. Well, that's a different thing. Oh, but, goodness. but yeah, my point is like, is that like, there are enough people out there to punish you. So don't punish yourself. Mm. If something bothers you, don't do it. Have lines in the sand. Have questions that you ask yourself before you take gigs. Filters where you're like, I will absolutely not. Those things on the personal level are so important. Yeah, when it comes to to, to punishing yourself, I think it's important to check in and be like, mm-hmm. is this because... I, do I need to feel bad or is this like residual homophobia and white supremacy? <laughs> like, yes. I mean, I feel like the the thing that I think about in terms of purchasing pleasure is that capitalism has set us into a cycle where we it makes us miserable and then we have to consume our way to pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think it's important to to try to disrupt that cycle and to try to imagine. I feel like when people think about socialism, I'm, I'm a, I, like I'm a socialist. I have been for a long time. But I also think maybe we need a, a better word because when people think of socialism, mm-hmm. they think of Stalinism, which mm-hmm. was like, bread lines dour horrible that's not what we're imagining what we're imagining is a world where not only rich people get to feel good yeah you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so there's this notion i can't remember which post-marxian thinker talked about this that capitalism has advanced production Mm -hmm. because when the birth of capitalism comes through feudalism feudalism was not a fun time there was scarcity there was not enough food for all of the people diseases killing everybody and 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 you know capitalism comes along and invents these new means of production now we actually do have enough to go around, and that's because of some of the things that have happened in the last few hundred years in MBD um, because of, of of capitalism. But now we need to imagine an entirely different way to distribute that ability to feel good, you know. And I think that so it's it's about reimagining a future full of abundance, full of mm-hmm. pleasure, and not just for those who can afford it. And exactly, if imagining a future wherein mm-hmm. we do not conflate pleasure with buying things. Right. Yes. You know, I mean, Adrian Murray Brown said part of the reason so few of us have a healthy relationship to pleasure is because a small minority of us hoard excess That's and right. resources everyone at the top. And so they create false scarcity and then try to sell us joy, sell us That's back right. to ourselves. Uh, you do have to explain something to me though, that you said that I'm very confused by what is making six figures. Uh, Anyways, that concludes our show. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. Mm, I'm feeling full, but like I could fit one more thing inside of me. Dan knows how I feel. And the cherry on our top this week is Joe. Y'all, I, um, I had a really hard semester and I wasn't able to read a lot during the semester. And I had a stack of books that I wanted to read after the semester. And one of them was Brontez Purnell's 100 Boyfriends. Uh, I, I've loved Brontez's work for years. Uh, you know, they do so many different genres are like doing film and music and and writing and they've uh, they've been around since the the zine world with teebs back in in brooklyn um and let me tell you i picked up this book and actually well, to be fair brontes was in oakland oh oakland yes. yes um i i picked up this book and it is a little bit teebs-esque in the it's a book that it really asked to be read in one sitting mm-hmm. and it is horny it is also teebs-esque thotty mm-hmm. let me just read so uh it it and I'm going to read a little bit, just one sentence or a couple sentences, and then talk about what the book is really about and why it's so exciting to me, besides the fact that there's just so much good sex written so well. So this is boyfriend number 666, The Satanist. And so this is a bit into the hookup scene. Silence, poser, he said, and advanced upon me. Before I could realize that I had not fully consented to it, I was naked with a belt around my neck and being choked uh, to the gods. Uh, he made me repeat, fuck God, hail Satan, over and over again. He was also like, you're just a faggot hole for Satan's sons, to which I rolled my eyes. So it's just like this, you know, it's hot, it's irreverent, it's funny, uh, in, in the way that sex is and is not often written about. 
But it also is deeply sort of non-monogamous in this way where everyone's a boyfriend, like someone you fuck once or someone you want to fuck as a boyfriend, like how I call little Nas X my boyfriend, right, even though sure. he never answers my DMs. But I do the exact same thing. I, it was exactly. so because I always call like people like my exes. And yeah. it's like, mm. it's like, no, you like had sex three times. You and, brushed like, up against me a, in the club yeah, once. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a queer culture thing to just like, totally. I mean, or it's very queer to, you know, just say shitty things for attention. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> it's also just like because Facts. it's like it's like yeah, I mean you know I think in in a lot it, we kind of um don't we I think we label relationships a lot less yep. than like cis hat the cis hat relationship but we like, use that word boyfriend yes we use yeah, it all the time because like we because we won't do it in the moment but we'll do right. it retroactively because it makes a better story right yeah <laughs> and I I love I, th- I found that to be really relatable about this book yeah. and I also love that it's told I mean it kind of reminded me of. Tommy's tum- Tumblr saga mm. journals where you are mm-hmm. like documenting all the d- boys you were the dating. The dates, yeah. It, similarly, it's kind of these mini like prose poems, these little mm-hmm. vignettes about all the different folks that Brontes has gone through. But I love, I love that it's like uh, it, 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 ironically it uses the word boyfriend where I think a lot of us imagine that it's a, a stable plateau that we're trying to get to like I want a boyfriend mm-hmm. right. where this book is about actually living your whole life uh, and and not searching for that boyfriend about Disposing fucking your friends <laughs> about about being like wanting this type of um, of adventure and newness in, in your sex life always and then the other thing that I think is so important that it's about um, is how everyone you date also has a, had a hundred boyfriends right. and mm-hmm. when you're fucking them you're fucking all of the people they've ever fucked before yeah, their expectations yeah. for sex have been set up so by their hundred boyfriends it's like one beautiful spiritual gangbang and then exactly <laughs> exactly 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 it's oh like God. every time you have sex it's a hundred by a hundred grid yeah. of all of the people that you fucked with before all of the desires that you've had uh, and it's and it's messy uh and and it is just going to be messy and and the real um the real sort of utopia or completion is not stability. It's embracing how messy life and dating is. And like that, you know, sometimes it's just more beautiful to like be in like love cycles as opposed to like being like every relationship must mean everything. You know what I mean? It's like the kind of beauty of non-committal, non-monogamy. And you know, this like one of my favorite boyfriends that he had is uh, in college, there was a white boy with dreadlocks. Um, and you know, and, 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 uh, it's like obviously this person is like kind of a, a poser and kind of a tool, but like that person is in Brontes or the in the narrator of this book still. Like even though you know that was a messy, dumb college relationship, that doesn't mean you don't carry the ghost of that boyfriend yep. from college yep. from when you were twenty two um, with you now. Uh, and I think that that to me it's it it gets at so many things that. Um, we imagine adulthood and and the simplicity of what we imagine adult life to be like. Uh, no, it's not like that. And and queer people are maybe the best at explaining why mm-hmm. and how. And that life is about acceptance, not destinations. One hundred boyfriends by Brontes Brunel. Go also, pick it, up. it is Go the, pick it up. the thottiest. Th- it is our brand. Y'all. Yeah, and I it, there's Fully like a brand. lot of vigor and energy to it, and so much momentum. And I just also check out Gravy Chain, Younger Lovers, uh, mm-hmm. Brontes' bands from back in the day, the Zine series, Fag School, which is like how I kind of was mm-hmm. um, introduced to Brontes, and then. Uh, what was it, Johnny? Would you love me if my dick were bigger? Yeah. I know. Yeah. 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 God. Mm-hmm. So good the titles. The most wild stuff. Yeah, amazing. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can go back and listen to other episodes about money and how we collect our coins. Three different episodes I got for you. You have Bet Your Bottom Dollar is the title of one episode. We have Working Girl, another episode about careers and making money. And then we also have an episode called Working 9 to 5. That's work spelled W-E-R-K. Because we're gay. Yes, (laughs) the worst. Only way to spell it. Um, But yeah, go back and re-listen to those conversations. This episode of Food for Thought is made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé and our new home at Stitcher. Our producer is the Mario to our princess in another castle, Alexandra De Palma. Aw, let's go! <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe, rate, and review us five stars on iTunes, or we curse you. No sex drive for ten years. I am Tommy Teebs Pico. You can find me at Hey Teebs, E-G-Y-T-E-B-S on Instagram, because I quit Twitter. I am Joseph Osmondson. You can find me at www.josephosmondson.com. 
I'm Den Michelle, and you can find me on all the social media platforms, but pay attention because the handles are changing. I'm Fran. You can find me at Fran Squish Co. on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also find my newsletter there as well. You can subscribe to our brand new and improved newsletter at foodforthought.substack.com for some extra delectable content. And check out our brand new merch, hats, tees, morally reprehensible thought goods at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. Find us on Instagram as Gay Sluts Who Read. Join us on Facebook and Twitter at Food for Thought Pod. And finally, send your questions, thoughts, concerns, and dick pics to thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thought spelled how? T-H-O-T. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 